Hey, Black Diplomats fam. Happy New Year, and I hope you all are doing well. We have some great stuff in store for 2022, including our Iran in Context series, which will explore how Iranian Americans reflect on the unfair and stereotypical ways in which Washington engages Iran and how average Americans can better inform themselves what's really happening and push back against the propaganda about Iran that our media and government rams down our throats. Stay tuned in the upcoming weeks for when that series drops. Helping me to bring in the first episode of the year is Pam Keith. She's been on the show before, so you know how dope she is. Keith is a former Democratic congressional candidate out of Florida and a lawyer who is working to help Floridians better engage the electoral process. She is also the child of a diplomat and a veteran of the U.S. Navy, and she has a very international mind. She grew up and has traveled all around the world, speaks at least three languages. Today, we are going to discuss how the U.S. should respond to Putin's demands that NATO stop expanding into Eastern Europe, the passing of Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and how the Republican Party, not Russia, is the greatest threat to American democracy. Here's our conversation. So, Pam, this is January 1st. We are entering a new year, right? And and so I have always enjoyed having you on because you know not only domestic politics, but you have a foreign affairs background, you have a military background. And so I feel like I can ask you anything. And not only do we align politically, but we have the same urgency of now. <laughs> Delighted to be here with you, Terrell. It is always fun uh, engaging with a brother who has a global perspective. So I, I just love it. And so thank you for the invite. So entering this new year, we, this is 2022. And I am always thinking about the emotional health of people when we enter new years. And also just reflecting on the year that has passed. So I'll open up with asking, how are you doing? Just forget about the news cycle. Just how have you been dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic and all of the drama that stresses us out about being Americans in this country and especially people who just want to make it better? Well, I'll be honest with you. I'm frustrated with Omicron. I'm frustrated with the numbers that we are seeing. I'm frustrated because in a lot of ways, it feels like we're back to square one, but we're really not back to square one because we really have a tool now to fight COVID and Omicron um, that we didn't have the last time we felt this way, right? So we have the vaccine, we have uh, masking and social distancing. At the moment, I'm coming to you from Bordeaux, France. It was a pain in the butt to get here and to figure out what I needed to do in terms of COVID testing to get here. But once I got here, um, everybody around us is vaccinated. Everybody believes in mask wearing. France has a much more sophisticated uh, tracking system. It has this QR code system. So anytime you wanna go indoors anywhere, you have to prove you're vaccinated, which just makes being indoors so much more relaxing and fun. 
because you're not fearful about the anti-vaxxer next to you because there are no anti-vaxxers next to you. Everybody in that place has to be vaccinated. And I'm just prayerful that we get to that point in the United States where we can feel comfortable going back to restaurants and concerts and museums and venues because nobody in there is unvaccinated. Everybody in there is masked up and social distancing and taking this thing seriously. Um, so you ask about my mental health. I mean, on the one hand, um, I consider myself extremely blessed and fortunate. I live in a country that does have the vaccine. So many of my brothers and sisters do not. Um, so I consider myself extremely lucky. Uh, but at the second, but on the other hand, you know, I have this constant low-level dread about what is happening to my country, and I am finding that the hardest thing to manage. My frustration and my rage at the total nonsense that I am seeing happening. And it's not being angry at Republicans because I've already figured out how to manage and mitigate my rage at Republicans. It's my anger at my own party for not right. being assertive and not being aggressive and not recognizing the threat and thinking that there's an easy way out of this by just being passive. And I just, I think that that's extremely wrongheaded. And Thankfully, pulling out of Twitter for a while and pulling out of the United States for a while is allowing me to kind of get a little bit more, a little bit less um, angsty about it, but it's not actually changing my opinion about the wrongness of the inactivity in, in, in curbing the fascism that's creeping through our country. It's something about stepping outside of America for me as well that just eases my anxiety because I'm not there and I'm not listening to the day-to-day -day news cycle, even though I am on Twitter and I follow a lot of journalists. I follow folks like you, but one of the reasons I enjoy being outside of America is because I don't want to be reminded of that day-to-day -day grind that our news cycle captures about the anti-vaxxers this and the third because at this point people have taken a position and i you know when i when when it was my turn to get the shots all three of my shots i took them because for me i consider being fully vaccinated with the booster at this point and I am just mindful of when I travel to other countries, how long it takes them to have access to these vaccines. Because there are a lot of people who are just getting the vaccines. They're not even at the boosters yet. Right. And and, and the countries I go to, they're not EU like France. But it's interesting to hear you talk about the contrast of France and when it's compared to, say, Central Asia. No one cares here. No one masks up. No one asks you for your cards. I have all of my vaccination cards and everything. No one asks for them. It's just a different mindset. In Ukraine, it's the same thing. Now, of course, the pandemic is impacting Central Asia and Eastern Europe like elsewhere. But the same security that you feel when you enter restaurants is not what I feel because these local governments are just not caring so i'm just on the opposite side of the the governmental precautions so you have to do an extra prayer for me i was in i was in the baltics this summer where people did take those precautions before i sat down 
I had to show my vaccination card or a negative COVID test. They were actually doing this before New York because New York was the first municipality or at least a major municipality to require uh, proof of vaccination before you sit down to eat or go into a gym, et cetera. So, but I had no problem with it anyway, right? It's, uh, but I'm also equally frustrated with our country because I feel like the rollout would have been much better. I feel like the, uh, just the overall education uh, is difficult because for the both of us, we are not only well informed, we we also disseminate edu- uh, information. So we're used to delivering information. We're used to taking it in, and so it's our jobs. And a, and much of America, they don't have the bandwidth to catch up with the difference between the federal guidelines and local guidelines. Right. And so it, it just it, it I'm also frustrated. And but what I do for my own mental health is. Run <laughs> yoga, because I mean, because, I mean, because because it's just not much. I mean, what can I do? Right. Well, I you know, I'm like you. I do physical things to help uh, mitigate stress. So I do kickboxing. So that's kind of my kickboxing workout really is to me. I love it because it's so aggressive and it allows me to really just, just purge myself of energy. Um, but also being around friends and family is very, very important to my personal mental health because it reminds me of what's important and that there's still joy in this life and there's still much to be thankful for and grateful for. And I think that attitude of gratitude really does help mitigate some of my anxiety and just kind of pulling back a little bit traveling, which I missed tremendously during COVID. Like even though it was a total pain in the butt to figure out what I needed to do to get here. uh, Once I got on that plane and I felt like, okay, I am flying to France. I'm flying out of the United States for the first time in like two years. And it feels so good to just feel like the world is available to me again, even if it's in limited quantity. It just, I know that that's a great way to, to, um, de-stress. I also love to cook and bake as a form of de-stress because food is pleasure and pleasure is the opposite of anxiety, right? So I always am seeking things that are pleasurable to me because I know that I'm moderating uh, an abnormal amount of anxiety within me because I'm not a typically anxious person. I'm not a person who chooses to wallow in anxiety. And so I'm not a person who right. suffers from, uh, you know, anxiety or panic attacks. That, that's just not me. And so I have way more anxiety in me than I typically carry. And so being cognizant of that means that I have to make concerted um, efforts to seek and grasp more of the things that counterbalance anxiety within me. And so that's how I sort of help to manage my mental, my mental health. Good, good, good. I always open up every episode asking people about that because it, we don't check in with each other. And I I always do that because we're people at the end of the day, even though we're trying to save the world. But um, I, I just want to open up with someone who made a major influence in the world. Uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa, he died uh, this week. And, you know, he is a Nobel Peace Prize laureate. And 
the accolades and the tributes were pouring in from everywhere. And I want to go to a particular article with CNN where it says, um, it, the headline is, as South Africa mourns Desmond Tutu, so do LGBTQ groups, Palestinians, and climate activists. And what's interesting about this article is what it, it, it rings... It really speaks to what a lot of folks are saying on Twitter, which is we hope that people are not beginning the Santa Clausation process with him, which we already see it, right? Because it, because he spoke out against some of the most quote unquote controversial issues of our time, particularly support of the Palestinians uh, against the very abusive state of Israel and he was also one of the first and major uh, South African leaders to be supportive of the LGBTQ groups. And when I think about him, I really think about how he and so many other people during their lifetimes, especially when they were young, right? These were people who were ostracized and people who were strongly criticized, but as they grew older and maybe their health waned a bit, then people's tone began to soften. And then after death, people say, oh, he was a leader of peace and all these other things, but people don't, in the news reports and the particularly broadcast, you don't hear people talk about these strong stances that he took, again, particularly with it, particularly with Israel and their treatment of Palestinians. And I'm just curious what your thoughts about Desmond Tutu is and how we ensure that a person's complete legacy is celebrated. You know, that's a that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think of Desmond Tutu as a person who spoke inconvenient truths about humanity, about the dignity of humanity and the need to see and to be consistent about the value of humanity in all its forms and all of its parts in the country, in the globe, right? And so if you are a true humanitarian, you're a person who says, I make no exceptions to my demand that all human beings be treated with dignity. I'm not gonna allow exceptions for geographic or political or, or religious or, or gender or personal affiliation. I make no exceptions to my black line rule about how human beings should be treated. And that we need people in the world with that kind of clarity. We need people in the world with that kind of courage and consistency and how they see humanity because our geopolitics don't actually allow for that. Our geopolitics say your humanity is largely dependent, your value to the world is largely dependent on how your government functions, how your money functions, what you look like, how much you bring to the table, how educated you are, and the stratifications uh, and the classifications that that are sort of the artifact of of um, of a world that that is views resources as scarce and to be apportioned in a certain way to their benefit and to the detriment of others. That is the way our world has functioned since time immemorial, right? 
from the beginning of the human experience, it has been, you know, uh, you, you eat what you kill, right? It has been, you know, for the large part, it's been oppressed or be oppressed. And it is really the angels who walk amongst us, who, who tell us of a different way, who speak of a different vision for the interactivity of the humankind. And so we need the Desmond Tutus, we need the MLKs, we need, but it is, but in their, in their day-to-day ministry, they speak in convenient truths, right? It's only posthumously that you can find comfort at what they say, because when they say it in, in actual time, confronting what you are doing right now, right? It is not welcomed. It is not appreciated. It is not positive. It's viewed as rebellious, is viewed as countercultural. It's viewed as dangerous and threatening to the power structures of the status quo. It's only posthumously that you can celebrate and say, well, yes, but that is speaking to our better nature. Yes, we should be looking and striving for these things, but to strive for equality is different than demanding equality. Everybody in the world can claim they strive for equality. Everybody in the world can claim that they're a person who supports justice, but not right here, not right now, and not with you, right? <laughs> like, you know, so is, my yeah. thoughts about, right? Like my thoughts about Desmond Tutu are very similar to my thoughts about Nelson Mandela. They're very similar to my thoughts about uh, Martin Luther King. It, and that is that they become sanitized in retrospect but they were nothing but threatening in their ministry. But that's sad though, right? Yeah. But but it but it's so sad though. And what's really it, it's just it's revisionism. And I'd say but but once a month I read some of the letters in the King Center because they have them all digitized. And I think the the more I read his personal letters and just and, and they have all all of his stuff when he responds to all the racist white people who called him out of his name and want and threatened to kill him. You saw his attitude where he was incredibly radical, like he didn't give a fuck, like he wasn't trying to appease white people. He wasn't doing any of these things to placate whiteness in ways that conservatives quote unquote celebrate him now right and he it, 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 but you, but if you read yeah and so you read these letters which is something that they don't do right you really get to see this person and another thing you notice he despised cops right i mean he talks often about his about his distaste with police in his in his writings but that's something that requires individual initiative and we are not conditioned to really look beyond like this corporatized uh, history that is set before us once the person dies. But then also with Nelson Mandela, when you look at when you look at the NA, um, when 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 you look at the uh, the the ANC, um, it it you see a Nelson Mandela who was fighting against people who were literally who literally colonized this country, right? And so. He was listed as all the worst ways you can call a terrorist enemy of the state. He was a freedom fighter. Right. But so was Jesus Christ. Let's be honest about it. Yes. I was going to go there. Yeah. Right. So at the end of the day, the person who is challenging the status quo of the power structure is nothing but a threat in real time. 
right? In real time, they are nothing but a threat and they must be contained. In retrospect, you can actually look at what they're saying and, and canonize and glorify what they said, but, but words in real time are actions, right? Words in real time are actions. Words in retrospect are aspirations, right? When you say something in real time that challenges a power structure, your words are actions. They are active. They are inciting, right? When you look at them in retrospect, you can say, oh, but they were aspirational. They were the best of us. They were telling us what we should strive to be. Right. But in real time, if you strive to take power from the power structure, you're a terrorist. You're a threat. Right. So that's the interesting double-edged or double-sided coin, right? Like in real time, challenging power structures and injustice and unfairness and inequality and all these wrong things that are the power structures that you are facing at your time makes you a, a threat, which is why, you know, at least according to scripture, which is precisely why Christ was crucified, right? Because it wasn't like they, they don't reserve crucifixion for the people they get down with, right? Like, it's not like, oh, we love you, let's crucify you. That's not how that works, right? If they go to that degree, it is because you are such an affront to the governing structure that you are confronting. Right. And that is true of people who call out all kinds of government structures. Right. But in retrospect, I mean, you talk about the ultimate appropriation of a message. It's right wing white evangelical Christians co-opting the message of Christ to make it justify racism and and corporatism and all these other things that the right wing now stands for. They stand on their quote unquote Christianity while rejecting everything that Christ was actually trying to accomplish through his ministry. So for me, if that is what they can do, if they can do such a complete 180 of what Christ stood for, then what chance does what Nelson Mandela stood for or what MLK stood for or what Bishop Desmond Tutu stood for, what chance do their actual words have of not being reapportioned and reappropriated and repackaged to say the 180 of what they stood for? Absolutely. It, it's really, you know, people. it's kind of like this critical race theory thing. People are just being deliberately difficult and making it and, and and just going out of their way to make it difficult and they don't want the they don't want the equality that they so seek i mean it's it's, it's totally clear you know being a stick in the river ain't gonna stop the flow that was one of my grandfather's favorite things <laughs> right like being a stick in the river ain't gonna stop the flow the, the the notion that you can somehow decouple racism in slavery and racism in Jim Crow and racism in redlining and school admissions and and jobs and and somehow today's African and the reality of today's African Americans in the United States that somehow you could make that not a continuum but you can make a continuum from pilgrims to blue bloods and in, in Boston like. Like, dude, give it a rest. You're gonna, you're, you're gonna, you're fighting a, a flow and an arc of history that you cannot, uh, you know, because people are not gonna unthink, right? They're not gonna stop themselves from, from from making those connections. Those connections are gonna be made. Those connections are gonna be spoken about. And people like you, and people like me, have been tasked with helping our audiences navigate their ways to comprehending these things, right? to being able to, yeah. to see the connection between 
you know, not getting an education when it, back in the 1920s and to how that affected your economic power in the 1940s that affected your ability to get your kids into college in the 1960s, which affects your, your ability to get your kids into, you know, to get them started and have wealth in, in the now 2000s. Yeah, you know, you can try to say all those things are disconnected, but that's stupid. Right. So what they're saying is we don't want to talk about it at all. I was like, I don't give a damn what white people do or do not want to talk about. You're not going to shut me up. And the thing is, yeah, people absolutely. want to hear what you you have to say. People want to hear what I have to say. We're fascinating. Yeah. So let's just keep on talking and people will find us. And you know what? More people. The thing is, I love it when they try to tell young people that something is verboten because they don't know young people if they think that that's going to make people not young people not hear it. It's going to make young people seek it. Because young people are rebellious as shit. And I love that. So yeah, go ahead and make it verboten. Go ahead and go. We got TikTok. We got Twitch. We got we got social media. We got young people have more and more resourceful ways of hearing each other. They're not listening to Mitch McConnell's attitude about CRT. Give it a damn break. You're not gonna be Nicki Minaj. I'm sorry, you're not. So whatever. (laughs) You say what you got to say. What my ministry is not fixing white people's attitude towards CRT. My ministry is to try to get young influencers to put information about CRT in their art, in their music, in their hip hop, in their, in their social media, in their athletic career. I want them talking about these issues when they influence and when they do their thing, because they do their thing their way. I just want them to elevate and insert some of that good food, that intellectual food and what they do because they feed so many with their talent. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I hear that. So, hey, rest in power, Archbishop Tutu. And let's talk about Putin, right? So I'm going to Ukraine next week. So just imagine I'm in Be safe, my brother. Don't get caught. I I have not gotten caught. have not gotten caught yet. Uh, so, but you know, it's that. a volatile situation, and and so I'm just like I have been. Let me just put it this way: I have been, my family and I have been caught in war zone, right? Where situation seemed okay until it wasn't okay, right? I was born in Turkey. There was a student uprising in the '60s. We got caught up in that, and our car got bombed. We had to get emergency evacuated out of there. So, and not once, but twice, my family has been emergency back evacuated out of some situation that went sideways faster than people anticipated, right? In Turkey once, in Lebanon, like, so let me just say, you know, whatever you got to do, pay close attention to what's up, because I don't want all flights out of Ukraine to be shut down because some stuff happened and Russia's got MIGs in the air and some shit. Like, I don't want you cut up that. I'm just... Uh, I appreciate, listen, I, I I appreciate that. And so what's happening right now is there are more than 100,000 Russian troops at the Ukrainian border. And what is expected possibly that th- there would be a continuation of the uh, invasion that began in 2014. People often say, yeah, yeah, of Crimea and also Luhansk and the Donbass regions. People are saying, well, who's going to invade, but he's already invaded, right? And so he's already invaded and he's occupying. And so what's happening right now is that Biden and Putin are in a series of phone conversations about the best way to ease tensions. Now, here's the thing that people ought to know is that this is basically an artificial threat that Putin is making up about NATO because his conditions are 
tensions can ease, i.e., I will not, yeah, I will not menace, I will not menace Ukraine. I will not threaten them with an invasion or talks of an invasion if you promise to stop NATO expansion. And the White House has clearly said that Ukraine has the right to choose whichever partners it has. But and and Putin is, is establishing this this uh, as a security risk to their safety. Now, here's a couple of things that we both know. One, NATO has zero interest in doing and in, in, in pushing any type of military attack against Putin. And the reason why we're having this conversation and people are not really getting to the heart of it is that is that the former when the Soviet Union broke up, right? It, 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 the reason why I broke up in 1991 it was because of pressure from the west particularly ronald reagan and neither of us cares for ronald reagan but he had good anti-soviet policy he did have that right and, and he, he did okay we give credit for that but also had the union not fallen in 1991 it would have fallen in 2001 because their economic structure was unsustainable that's the and then that's the one thing and then two the people, people did, did other things. The other part, uh, the other countries, the people didn't want to be there. And the primary reason is that the Soviet Union was just selling a bad product. And so no one wants your product. Go, yeah, go ahead. I think there's another component to this that people don't seem to understand because our identity as Americans is always as Americans first, except for Texas. But for most of us, we don't have a history, a tradition, a culture that is divorced from Americanness. Whereas the when you look at the Soviet Union, and especially if you look sort of pan-Soviet through the Eastern Bloc countries, all of these countries and all of these ethnic groups had identities and cultural norms that were completely divorced from a Russian identity, right? Russia as a country was a was a was not like they're not they're Soviet only in as much as Sovietism was imposed upon them. And in order for their culture to work with Sovietism, they had to subordinate their their Kazakhness or their Ukrainianness or their Romanianness to this greater Soviet paradigm. So when the greater Soviet paradigm started to crumble, they obviously reverted to their cultural, historical, religious, ethnic sense of identity. That's exactly what happened with Yugoslavia when it when it broke up. Macedonians didn't want to be Yugoslavian. You know, Serbians didn't want to be Yugoslavian. Croats did not want to be Yugoslavian. They wanted to be Croatian. And and that was the, and the tension between a Croat with a sort of Romanian Roman background against the Serbs and their Cyrillic and their sort of Eastern looking Orthodox background. They didn't want to be same. They didn't want to be same, same. So once they were given, once that yoke that, that, that bound them together started to crumble, they naturally disassociated. They naturally re-encamped into their cultural and ethnic identities. And that's the thing that was, that's what I think people didn't understand about the fall of the economic yoke of the Soviet Union was that it was that economic and, and political yoke that tied together entities that were really not all that similar. Chechens are not exactly like Ukrainians. I'm sorry, not same. 
Well, they aren't. I mean, they're a completely different race of people. Yeah, I mean, it's just. I mean, <laughs> right. Yeah. And so you, so, so that, but, but that's because you Chechen history goes way, way back. Ukrainian tradition yeah. goes way, way back. The United States, we go back two hundred sixty years, three hundred years tops. Like you're not going back far enough to say I have an identity as an Ohioan that is totally disconnected from my U.S. identity. That is right. something that we don't actually relate to because we really don't have an identity that is divorced from being an American, right? Mm -hmm. Ukrainians do. They have a chapter of their history where they were Soviet, a chapter of their history where they were Ukrainian, a chapter of their history when they were part of like Sweden or some shit like that. Like, like they, but they're mostly identified around their language, their Ukrainian Orthodox church, there are traditions. There is a thing that is uniquely Ukrainian that is absolutely not Russian, right? And they don't want to be Russian. And so it is because of that that Russia has to use such a heavy hand, right? It has to invade because it's not going to get it through negotiation. It's not going to get Ukraine to come back to the Soviet Union through anything but force. So it has to use force. Because you know they're trying to use a Eurasian Union, right? They're they're Eurasian Union where Belarus is in there and a few other places, but it's like it's a. But it, that's a but it's involuntary. There's no such thing as an involuntary union, right? That's just an occupation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Voluntary yeah. union is a voluntary union. Anything else is an occupation, and so 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 the thing with Russia is that it can only hold on to territory through force. And it is trying to make it sound like you, Ukraine's choice to join NATO, or if it even went so far as to join the EU, like that choice to join something from the West is equivalent and tantamount to Russia taking over Crimea. Like we're creating something over here and you're creating something over there. So if you stop doing, if you stop increasing and we stop increasing, we have detente, bullshit. We increase through diplomacy, negotiation, and choice. You increase by occupation and violent takeover. Not same. And you're not going That's, to say yeah. that Ukraine's decision to look westward is equivalent to their, to their being subsumed into the Soviet Union. And, and, it's a, and that it is an equivalent threat to you because we're not suggesting that because Ukraine looks to the West and wants to join with NATO, we are now looking to use Ukraine as a jumping off block to invade Russia. We've never had an interest in invading Russia. It's not same, same here. We're not looking for violent takeover or occupation of Russian territory. That is not the American imperialist model. The American imperialist model, to the extent that there is one, is a sociocultural imperialism and an economic imperialism, not a physical one, right? So we're not going to ever invade Russia. So their idea, they have fear, that Cold War fear that the United States is gonna take over Russia is nonsense. We don't need your turf and we don't want it. But but here's another thing though. Yeah, but here's another thing too, right? And I and just when piggybacking off what you're saying, I'm going back to the initial point that I brought up is that Russia has nothing to sell. So when you, when you think about the you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. You know what it has to sell? Weapons and nuclear technology. Okay, let me okay. Fair enough, but the thing, well, I can amend it, that's all. Right, I mean, because the thing about it and is that oil and gas, but but their but their gas productivity doesn't even match the United States 
gas productivity anymore. So yeah, but they but they uh, but, used but, but to be the gas pipeline to, to Germany. I mean, like they used to they used to be the, the, the and they still are an important component of the gas of the of the oil and gas profile of Europe. They still are. That's why we're even talking to them at all because we could tell yeah. them to go pound sand. The only reason we we're not could. telling them to pound sand is because we have not quite fully decoupled Europe from Russian oil and gas like we haven't. And we also kind of don't want destabilization in the oil and gas market, which would happen if Russia's oil and gas was completely cut off. It, it, it does, but the thing but but the thing about Russia though is that when you think about the the country covers it, it, it's it, it's the largest country as far as land space on earth and their population is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. America has more than twice the number of people in its country. Also, when you think about the best and brightest minds in Russia, they either immigrate or if they speak out, they're in jail or they or they're killed. So, no one, you have you you're, you have a country in which your own people as far as the best and brightest minds don't want to be. They they don't want to be there. I'll never forget when Medvedev visited the United States when he was president or basically the kind of sit-in president for Putin. And he went to Silicon Valley and he was talking about how he wants Russia to be a Silicon Valley Valley. And that's never going to happen because the number one component and, and the number one component of success like Google, which one of its founders is a Russian, right? And so all all it, it requires ingenuity and freedom. And so it, it requires a it requires yeah, yeah. ingenuity, it, it requires freedom, and it requires a certain kind of ecosystem, right? It requires an ecosystem that allows for trial and failure, an ecosystem that allows for investment, an ecosystem that allows for diverse opinions to come to the table, diverse talents and skill sets coming to the table. It, it, it requires an ecosystem, right? You got to test your product. You got to be able to do a lot. And you got to, and that diversity of thought that comes to the table, you have to have a diverse population to bring that diversity of thought. But it's suppressed. It, like they don't, and, and they don't have it and they don't foster it. Right. And so when you look at, you know, when you look at a Ukrainian, for example, or a Georgian or a Latvian, they're not looking to Russia as a source of inspiration to do anything. The first thing, the number one thing is on their minds that are you going to invade us because we don't want to be a part of your fucking Eurasia bullshit union. You get what I mean? And like, who who wants to be in a partnership with fucking Belarus? Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I, mean, I, you know, I, I got no beef with Belarus, Belarusian people, but here's what I will say. It is the great, what is the interesting thing is like, we always talk about these things on these sort of like economic, political, but we're not dealing with the true the other underlying thing here, which is race. Russia isn't yeah. white. Like not all of Russia, because it's got its Asian population sure, yeah, and it's yeah. got its Muslim population. But per, for the most part, when you think of Putin, it's certainly the Russia that he, the greater Russia that he's envisioning, it's a white Russia. It's a male Russia, yeah. right? And you're looking at and what it's trying to build in that Eurasian Union is a union of white male Russian power, right? And he's trying mm -hmm. to connect with the Nigel Farage's of the world and all of the, the Boris Johnson's and the Donald Trump's and so on to create this Bolsonaro, to create this whole like, you know, an Erdogan, like this white male dominant out of, but it's a 
but it's a sign of desperation because they're seeing the browning of the world, they're seeing the feminizing of the world, and they're seeing the, the integration of the world. And it is happening, and it's happening fast. And it's happening in a way that only violence can stop or mitigate. But you know, Pam, but you know, Pam also too, was the, the irony of what you're saying, which I agree with, is that too many Americans now have to, have to explain this to them about the Ukrainian conflict, uh, what Russia's conflict with Ukraine, because Ukrainians don't have a problem with the Kremlin, right? Uh, is the issue is that people look at the Ukrainians and Russians as two of the same people. Like, aren't these two white people fighting each other? It, no. And I have to explain this to them because Putin looks at Ukrainians like white trash. So, 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 okay, so, well, yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree. But would you say that Irish and Argentinian are the same or, or even Irish and Polish? Are Irish and Polish the same? They're white. Are they the same? But they are, but they aren't. And, right? and, but, and by but, the way, they're both Catholic. But are they the same? No, no, not even a little bit, right? No, because no. cultural artifacts, <laughs> right? Like, no, but they're white and they're Catholic. So are they safe? No. And you would offend an Irish person if you said they were tantamount to Polish, or you would offend a Polish person if you said they were tantamount to Irish. They're right. Like right. they'd be offended by that. Right. And so we got to be a little bit more sophisticated and nuanced in our comprehension of what's going on here. And we do. Yeah. But they also too. But I use that as a way to explain this conflict because it's just bigger than geopolitical politics. This is a man in Putin who feels like he is leading a, a, a nation of people who who are in, who are superior to the Ukrainian. And so if you look at his recent essay that was published i believe it was this summer the way that he talks about ukrainians is called quote unquote little brother or you know he talks about it as if it's an oblast in russia or should be and so he subjugates them just as humans right and ukrainians generally feel that and so that is one of the major motivating factors in his whole thing is why the hell aren't you with us so why don't you want to be russian we're so superior to you why would you? but but, but what, what's what's fascinating about all of that is that to a certain extent we're missing another big white elephant in the room which is that vladimir putin is not popular domestically and he holds power only through intimidation and even that is starting to to have its tectonic reverberations in his own country. He has nothing to offer his people. He has no new ideas. He has no economic development. He's got COVID running rampant through his country. He doesn't have any damn good ideas. So his, you know, one of the ways that you rally your country to you and hold, hold them to you is by turning them against a, a, an other. And, and Russian nationalism has been used to such great effect in the past to rally the Russian people and to stave off internal strife, right? And so one of the best ways to foment Russian nationalism is to turn it against little brother Ukraine. Like, why shouldn't you all wanna be Russians? We all wanna be Russians. Don't we all wanna be Russians? Russians is great, right? That's a, it's a trick. There, you know, the Kremlin, his party, they remind me of the Republican Party, right? And so they find these issues, yeah, right. They remind, they remind me not only of Republicans, but they remind me of the conservative that's still grieving over the fact that they lost the Civil War. And so I, I, there's a comparison between the Civil War and the fall of the Soviet Union. I genuinely find that there's a parallel in the way that Putin thinks and talks. And so, and he, and what you do, like how the Republicans are using critical race theory as a way to rally support. Because the thing about, 
uh, a, a lot of, of Russians is that, um, and you will hear this in Ukraine, particularly uh, Ukrainian, a lot of Ukrainians critique of Russian liberals who are fighting Putin is that the Russian, li Russian liberalism ends at Ukraine's borders, right? And so there is still very much this mentality that Ukraine belongs to us. And so even with Navalny, who is in prison and who is being, who, who I consider a freedom fighter in Russia himself and who is being abused and who needs to be released because he was uh, jailed on trumped up charges, uh, the, the question of Ukrainian independence was not something that he clarified. And so you still have this mentality in, Ukraine, uh, in, in Russia that this place belongs to us. And so he and I bring that up because I think it's very similar to how Republicans in this country find an issue that's made up. Right. And it's essentially ridiculous. And they create an issue of it and rally people around it. And Putin and one of the conversations about Ukraine is that he's using this as a rallying call. And so the only and Ukrainians, the way that they're talking about this is that. When we start sending Russian body bags home, that is going to change public sentiment. Not that they give a damn about us or think that it's morally wrong. They don't want their people dying getting this country. You know what I'm saying? And so that's what that's the conversation there. Mm -hmm. I think you're absolutely right. It's so funny. I, I back in the day, day I I well not that long ago, but I, I went to Stockholm mm -hmm. and I went to a museum in Stockholm, or maybe it was Norway. Anyway, I went to this museum that I was really fascinated because it had a room in which it had maps of every like hundred years going back thousands of years, you know, to 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 a, a sort of displayed in this in this room, and you could literally see how territories were of this king or of this duke or of that king or of that country or of this language or of that religion and how they changed over time. Right. And when you saw and, and what was interesting is they had the same red push pin um, in each of the maps. And you could see how that red push pin went from one country to another country, to another king, to another religion, then back. And then. And so whose was it? Whose was it, quote unquote? How is Ukraine belonging to Russia? And because some at some point it belonged to Finland, and at some point it belonged to Sweden, and at some point Napoleon was up in there for a little bit. And you're like, like what? Well, that red pin belongs to people who live at that red pin, right? Right, like and who have always lived at that red pin. And so it just, it's just, it's fascinating to me this idea. But I think you make such an excellent point. It's like. It's it's that rallying thing, and Putin doesn't have good things to rally his people around, because he murders those who disagree with him, or he jails those who can run against him. He had offers his people nothing and no hope, no vision, no future, no nothing. He offers them nothing, and so he has to offer them nationalism. That at least they're Russian and not Ukraine. Right, exactly. So and speaking on that in our own country, back in 2016, 
we all, I think a lot of the black reporters and people like yourself knew that Donald Trump would have a good chance of winning this ele- winning the 2016 election, right? We all saw it, and even though a, a lot of the white press didn't see it because they thought, oh, America would never elect someone like him. I'm like, uh, we understand America, right? Right. And, and, and so also, we always knew that this Republican Party that we see is the one that always existed. And so Trump gave them a permission to be even more outly racist. Right. And so he was just bold enough to do that. And so what we find with this. And, and so when we saw this January 6th uh, insurrection take place, um, that was something that also was not surprising. But what we really uh, but but I go back to th- 2016 because. I, I say this in that when we think about Putin, we spend so much time talking about Putin gate or the Kremlin gate. And yes, we both know the geopolitical threat that Putin is. I have always argued and people have really, really uh, were really upset and offended when I said this then and I still stand behind it is that when you really come, when you stack America against Russia, Russia does not stand a shot, right? Uh, and Mal- Malcolm, Malcolm yesterday said that uh, Russia was a trailer park with nuclear weapons. <laughs> That's how he described it, right? And, 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 and but, but the main thing is the reason why Russia is able to attack our electoral systems is that we do a crappy job of strengthening them and defending them, right? And so. When you look at when when you look when you and also with our own electoral security, you look at the Republican parties, say Georgia, for example, where their legislator legislature created laws where it's illegal to hand people water who are waiting in line to vote, right? And so, and also when you look at uh, Florida, places like the uh, governors like DeSantis, who are not investing in election machine security. And, and, and so you have these type of issues going on. So it's not. So I've always argued that it's not that Putin is all that powerful. It's just that he really exploits weaknesses, because if we had done our. So so if we strengthen those those holes and those gaps, they wouldn't be able to do it. And so we and we weaken our own security by creating these false narratives about you know, these false narratives and, and distractions around critical race theory, things that have nothing to do with strengthening our democracy. And so January 6th, to me, it reminds me, you know, it, it, you have a it, the Republican Party is a as a party of turncoats and a party. Definitely, I would consider them a um, I would definitely consider them um, useful idiots at the bare bones minimum to 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 the Kremlin at, at the very at the bare bones minimum and and flat out accomplices in the other but go ahead you're going to jump in well I mean first of all I think your points are very solid so once again tip of the hat to you because I think you hit mm-hmm. on some really key issues mm-hmm. I will say that I'm perhaps a little bit more cynical than you are my brother um okay. I don't think they're useful idiots I mean I think they're useful I don't think they're idiots I think they know okay. that um that they can't win playing fair. They can't. Mm-hmm. So they need all the help they can get. They're willing to get help from Russia because Russia's white male dominance uh, personified. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
I, I think they would rather be authoritarian. They would rather be Russian than be, be led by black people or women or the LGBT community, right? Like they would rather lose democracy altogether than share power with black people. I, and so that's what I see. There's nothing idiotic about it. It's, man, it's mendacious. It's, it's very tactical. It's very strategic. It's led and, and enforced by people like Rupert Murdoch, Murdoch and his network and his, but everything is, is so coordinated. It is so thoughtful. It is so, uh, you know, uh, Machiavellian in its, in its, in its detail and its thought and its forethought and its, you know, and the thing that bothers me the most and what I told you earlier in the show was about my sort of constant low level dread is watching such a thoughtful, strategic, coordinated, calculated, uh, and utterly soulless and, and, and utterly morally untethered approach to manipulating things into their favor that the GOP is willing to undertake counterbalanced by this absolute unwillingness to engage the passivity, the relentless laziness of the Democratic Party, the sort of total unwillingness to do anything to stop this because they believe that just the weight of the American people, the weight of the American economy, the, the demography or whatever, they're just gonna handle, it's gonna deal with it. Eventually they'll just get tired of this, whatever. When I think of the strategic things that we could do to crush this fascistic movement in our country, the easy, the ease with which we could put it down like the rabid dog that it is, we could crush this, break it, and demolish it into smithereens because we do have the weight of the American people, because we do have the weight of the moral right in all of this, right? and the choice to not do so because they have an interest in bringing those white people back to the fold. Like if they were black people, they wouldn't hesitate to crush them. But because they are white people, because they are rich white men, they keep thinking that somehow it's, it would be, they're afraid. They're afraid of Trump's minions and his proud boys and his wackadoodles and his QAnoners. They're afraid of them when the reality is all you have to do is rally your own troops and drive them into the other enemy camp and you would break their ass. But you don't actually want to break their ass. What you want to do is bring them back to the fold as if them being in the fold is necessary, which it's not, by the way. You could put them on the margins of society just as quickly as you put Black people on the margins of society. Right, 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 right. Yes, you're going to get into that. But you know, there are people in Congress who see that, right? So you have Cori Bush, you have Ilhan Omar, you have Rashida Tlaib. But, but you know the problem with that, though? Well, the problem that, that, that the establishment uh, has with those people is that if you center a Cory Bush, for ex a representative Cory Bush, for example, or Ilhan Omar, then they are perceived as threats to that white male power structure that maintains that power. And I'll tell you another key thing, right? The person who ought to be running the DNC right now is Latasha Brown. Right. Yeah, I it mean, is, I would, it, I would get, I would, I would, I would go for that. But but yes and no, because see, the thing is, what we don't understand is that 
The DNC's purpose is running the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is expressed through clubs and caucuses and state parties, right? That is not Latasha's mm -hmm. ministry at all, right? So I think what you have to have is a DNC that runs the party and a separate entity that runs the brand and runs democracy, right? A democracy entity, not a democratic entity, right? A democracy entity says, look, we need equality, we need justice, we need opportunity, we need people to be able to run, we need people to have, be able to have a level playing field, we need to get money out of politics. Like, that democracy entity is what's missing. It ain't the Republican party and it actually ain't the Democratic party either. We're closer than the GOP, but even so, when it comes to internal inside baseball, we're, can, we can be just as anti-democratic as Republicans could be. Like, let's get real. It's the, the Ilhans and the AOCs and the Corys broke through, right? It's not because the party wanted them to, right? They somehow, through thick and thin, managed to break through and find and, and carve out for themselves a niche in this, in this status quo structure. But the party doesn't see defending democracy as its mission. It's it sees defending democratic seats as its mission. And those are different concepts. That is what is missing. Latasha is about democracy. She's not about de defending democratic seats. De defending democratic seats is a tool to democracy, a, 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 a necessary element to getting democracy because only Democrats care about democracy. But the actual mission of defending democracy is supposed to be the president's job, but our president doesn't see that in his job, right? Like his job, he sees his job as trying to just keep the Indians in, in check. And like, I, there are ways that I adore Joe Biden, but there are ways that he so disappoints me and he makes me so, so angry. And his unwillingness to check the fascism in our country is something that's driving me batty. And his unwillingness to demand that the rule of law be applied to white people like it is to black people and be applied to Republicans as it is to Democrats drives me crazy. He is watching his nominee for attorney general totally fuck that job up. And he is sitting there in absolute passivity, allowing it to happen as if somehow because he got an attorney general, he has to be hands off and let the attorney general fuck up the job. No, you don't. If you see that the attorney general isn't doing the job, let alone doing it well, it is your job as president to replace him. It is your job. You can have a cabinet member who does not work out. You don't stick with a bad cabinet member because they because oh my god I'd be interfering with the post office if I replaced the joy I'd be interfering with the transportation department if I fired Buttigieg bullshit the buck stops with you dude and you could fire everybody in your cabinet if you wanted to because they all serve at the pleasure of the president of the United States and if well, you're doing though. the job let me ask you this though but 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 do you think it's because Biden, he has he's he's a bit too chummy. He's been a part of that system for decades, and it, it's just you know is that a part of it? I think it's two parts. It's one he he he's an anachronism. He's a both a, 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 a just general anachronism and a political anachronism, right? He's a he comes. He came up in a time. He's just, I don't think he believes. I don't think he appreciates or understands or appreciate or believes the threat the white men pose because he is one, and he just doesn't believe that these guys that he golfed with are really that out to destroy democracy. I don't think he buys it. I think he thinks it's it's a passing phase or something. The second thing is he is a one trick pony. 
Like Joe Biden has spent 40 years legislating, so he thinks legislation fix everything. But he's not a leader, and he's sure the fuck not a world, a, a wartime leader, and we are at war. He is our wartime leader. You know who was? Franklin Dental Roosevelt. Roosevelt was as effective at getting legislation does as he was at shutting down authoritarianism and, and breaking the kneecaps of the Nazis. So think about what FDR did to be a leader, right? Every week he had this radio thing that he did to talk to the American people via radio every week. He didn't have to do that. But by doing that, he rallied the people to him, not to their elected senator, not to their elected congressman, to him. And he was like, I'm Daddy Warbucks. I'm the leader of the United States. I'm the leader of the free world. I got you. Even if he didn't have the answer in the radio, so he, he was telling the American people, I got this. Trust me. So when their congressman and their senator wanted to do something other than the New Deal, they were like, nah, -uh. Franklin got this. I'm with Franklin because Franklin talked to me about how we're going to get through this. I'm scared about the depression. He told me he was going to create programs to get me through this. He did. And so what does Nazis scared me and I had to send my son or my husband to war. I, I was willing to do it because I was there with Franklin, not with my senator, not with my congressman, but with my president. And he got the loyalty of the American people and he was able to hold it and rally the American people. Joe Biden is not capable of doing that. And even if he, but he's, which is a problem, but he ain't even trying. He could have a live stream every month to tell the American people what he's doing and why he's doing it and what he hopes to accomplish. He's trying to go out on a road tour about build back better. But you know what he could do to actually get the American people to buy, buy into BBB? Build your own damn network. I have been screaming at the Democrats to build their own network. All they seem to be able to do is whine and complain about the, how the MSM is not covering Joe Biden's fairly and is not giving him credit and is not talking about the things that Joe Biden wants him to talk about. So what did, what did Trump do when the media didn't talk about what he wanted them to talk about? He built OAN. Do you like OAN? No. Do I like OAN? No. But do you admit that it's effective? Hell yes. We don't have to build a democratic OAN in the sense that it's lying and manipulative, but we can build a democratic OAN in the sense that it's talking about our subjects from our perspective, 24 seven, 365 to every television that receives Fox News. We can do that. So why the hell don't we do that? Passivity, passivity, passivity. That's why. Yeah, 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 and yeah, and, and I and I think that he's beyond, you know, talking, you know, getting him to 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 see it otherwise. But he's stubborn. Yeah. About Joe Biden is stubborn as hell. That dude is just he's 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 a curmudgeon. <laughs> he is as he's Grandpa Kettle and the and the POTUS <laughs> too stubborn to to understand what and millions of people are telling him. Thousands of people are telling him to get rid of Merrick Garland. He won't even acknowledge the request, let alone address why he's sticking with Merrick Garland, right? Or why he will bust a move. He ain't saying nothing. Now, FDR had the gift of always acknowledging the anxiety of the American people. He always acknowledged the anxiety of the American people. Joe Biden doesn't. That's what makes him fall short of the mark. He falls short of the mark because he thinks he can just, everything is fine, everybody do everything.
and and, yeah. and you can't everything is fine your way through this shit yeah, and we know that it's not. So tell me what are you looking forward to this year? Um, to just about yourself, because we know that there are things that um that 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 um we know what's going on at the national level, but um tell me about you. What what are you looking forward to? Because the thing about it was that 2020 was a year where it was rough, but hey, Georgia flipped. Right. So there are a lot of positives that we look to, but we but a lot of that is because of what our own people have done. And so what are some things that we can celebrate going into 2000 and and 22, despite all of the negative stuff that's happening? Well, I tell you, my I, I am a dual footed person, both geographically and sort of career wise. I spend my time. Um, on social media really focused on political issues, but my life, my job, my side hustle is I am a lawyer. And one of the things that I have been really um, super active in and, and basically takes up all of my life is destabilizing the blue coat of silence in police departments um, and disrupting it. And so I brought, my law partner and I filed in September the first ever class action lawsuit on behalf of black women police officers calling out the racism, the sexism, and the culture of intimidation within police department in Washington, DC. So that was filed in September. In October, we filed another suit that had to do with the uh, uh, retaliation and how they bullied out people that, that, would, that reported or, or, or told the truth about misconduct within the police department. The third case was filed um, in October, no, excuse me, in December, um, about internal affairs and the manipulation of internal affairs and the corruption of internal affairs and how it throws the book at black officers and lets white officers get away with murder um, and and how it has it is deeply corrupted by racism and sexism as well as that component putting bad officers back on the streets, right? You wonder how it is that white officers like Derek Chauvin could have that many disciplinary problems and get put back on the street. Well, I'm telling the story of how internally the mechanism works to make that happen. And so in 2022, and that has really started to move the blocks inside of MPD. Um, and, and it's Pandora's box is open. Police that have been mistreated, police that have seen, um, uh, you know, misconduct and awful things are coming and calling us day and night. Uh, our phones are ringing off the hook with police finally ready to tell the truth. And it's because the women have the courage to speak up, the black women in particular. And so 2022, I am prayerful. I am prayerful that we can build a true movement across the country to start to destabilize and to dismantle that blue code of silence where they back each other up no matter what. And they think that they are above the law and that they can abuse their power both amongst each other and in the way they police the community. And that I think is a, is a big calling. It is a big task. And I, it's all I'm basically thinking about these days. Um, but it's been on CNN, it's been on NBC, it's been all over the place. This is the first ever attempt to change policing from a culture perspective and a mindset perspective, starting from the inside out. I hear you. Listen, and I'm for one, I'm looking forward to helping and amplifying voices like yours and the work that you're doing, because this is a show that focuses on foreign policy. But I always talk about the things that we have to do uh, structurally inside in order to strengthen our um, to, to strengthen our institutions, because 
I believe that foreign policy is a is directed to domestic policy and, you know, and vice versa. And so I am looking to continue to build my my podcast platform. I'm getting funding for it. And so it's steadily growing. And you mentioned earlier about this need of the Democratic Party creating its own, you know, media ecosystem. And what I'm doing is creating a space where um, black evidence is honored and acknowledged and amplified. And so building a stage where people like us can come on and talk about how we view America, because ultimately, when I think about foreign policy, it's about how do you view the world? How do you want the world to look? How do, what, what is your vision for this? Right. So it's not calculus in a sense that two plus two equals four. We make decisions deliberately about how people choose to live, where they live, and what sides that you take, right? And so what I do is I want to really make sure that when we're making foreign policy choices that, A, people feel like they, um, people feel like their their thoughts and their views, and not just us, but common people who feel like these, these subjects are out of reach for them. And I think that a, a lot of foreign policy establishments have convinced people that if you don't have a PhD, if you're not at a think tank, or if you don't work as a foreign correspondent, you shouldn't be having these conversations. And I think it's a very elitist mindset, a very arrogant mindset, a very white supremacist mindset that I think, unfortunately, uh, um, some people of color have fallen into themselves because they want to be at that table without really speaking truth to power, like we were talking about Desmond Tutu and, and, and other great leaders before us, right? And so I, that, that's what I do. And I, I, I really, and I feel like I've gained a voice in that way. And I feel like people like you to come on and always support me are making it better. So it's like we're, when, when we have all these structures that fail us and, this, and, and we strengthen these structures despite themselves, Right. We, we always think about, hey, this we are what we got. Right. And we think about Georgia. I always think about the fact that black folk um, flip Georgia. I always think about the fact that Joe Biden won because we said that we are not going to we can't afford for you to lose. <laughs> so. So. So, yeah. You know, and so I, I just feel like this platform that I'm building, I feel very good about it. And I feel very good in that it's. It, it, it's, it's growing and I can definitely see it being something much larger for us. And I'm just happy that I had the confidence to invest in me. And yeah, I'll just, yeah, just end like yeah. that. Well, I'm glad you do what you do, Terrell. I think a lot of people uh, don't ask black people's opinions on foreign policy. They don't ask black people's opinions on national security. Only time they ask a black person to be on the show is to opine about domestic and most especially race issues, because if that's the only thing we can talk about. And um, so I appreciate this opportunity. I don't mind talking about race. I'll talk about race all day. I'll talk about domestic right. issues all day. I think I'm well versed <laughs> in those things. But I do also have a military and foreign policy background, the daughter of a diplomat. I've lived all over the world. And yes, I do speak three languages. Je suis ici en France parce que je peux parler français avec mes amis. Alors, so yes, I can bring a lot more to the table than just an opinion on race issues. And so I'm just so grateful that you've built this platform. I think we had a great conversation with Malcolm and I hope in 2022, we get to have uh, more conversations like that. Yeah, and, and absolutely. So with that, definitely thank you for coming on. And 
yeah and so i'm just yeah so we're we're, we're going to enter the new year with with gusto and hope and uh and, and keep it moving amen thank you terrell i had so much fun black diplomats podcast comes to you with support from the outrider foundation as well as my devoted patron supporters and production of black diplomats comes thanks to mike hall my brother from another mother thanks for listening and see you all next week